Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. It's the slow fade that gets us where we don't want to be without realizing that we don't even want to be there. The snare of the slow fade doesn't begin with a radically aware or auspicious decision, but rather the gradual abdication of what we know to be right and to be righteous. The slow fade is otherwise known as the hindrance of compromise. From the colonnade of the White House, from the benches of our courts, to the chambers of the Senate, amongst the aisles of Congress, do we know the impact of compromise? From the steps of our state governments, to the pulpits and platforms of our churches, do we taste the disgust of compromise? From the hallways of our schools, from the sands of our beaches and the swings and slides of our playgrounds, do we endure the threat of compromise? In the corners and computers of our offices and workplaces, in our living rooms, in our bedrooms, in our children's eyes, do we know the reality of compromise? Some third. <clears throat> Some 30 years ago, renowned pastor, ally, and Dr. Falwell's moral majority, founder of Evangelism Explosion, and one of the architects of Reclaiming America for Christ, Dr. D. James Kennedy, said, tolerance is the last virtue of a depraved society. When you have an immoral society that has blatantly, proudly violated all of the commandments of God, there is one last virtue they insist upon, Tolerance for their immorality. A hundred years prior, Charles Spurgeon said, I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment, a hundred years ago, has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Just this week at the 2019 Southern Baptist Convention, Albert Moeller, president of the convention's largest seminary, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, made this indictment. Our evangelism was tied to revivalism. That toolkit works when evangelical Christianity is triumphant in the culture. But we are not triumphant in this culture right now, and the world has figured that out. Those are burdensome statements and a raw reality. It should grieve and, and rally all of us. Nevertheless, the the point of our message today, this morning, is not a direct assault on any specific issue of our culture today. We can bark about those things until we are blue in the face and no longer know who is enemy or friend. We must confront culture, yes, but it is not an effective nor wise strategy for us to combat culture, for there is so much compromise from within us. We must instead counter culture. Pastor Rick Warren, known for his peaceable and pragmatic ministry approach, perhaps expresses this best. Our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. The second is that to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. We will discover in our study of the word here in just a moment that we find the Israelites living in a day of pluralism, not so different than us today. It's easy to get confused and start accepting that tolerance for what is sin and secular is the same as approval. It is not. In a In a republic where we have a democracy such as ours, the law gives the people the freedom to live as they please, 
We should be thankful for that. And we must exercise patience and tolerance towards those who believe and practice things that we know God has condemned in his word. The church today doesn't. It can't wield a sword. In many ways, its own compromise prevents it from and casts us into our own hypocrisy. Our obligation instead as believers in Jesus Christ is to maintain a separate walk so we won't become defiled by those who are living in sin and living in darkness. Instead of being wishy-washy people who will selfishly counteract our ethics or our doctrines on a whim, we must live joyous and holy lives that point to Jesus Christ as the lone source of our personal conduct. Pastor Jonathan Falwell. Scripture says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said. I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness and the fear of God. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 7. That's not our text for today, but it succinctly captures the heart of the passage we're going to take a look at. The effects of compromise are seen and felt all around us. But our culture didn't become like it is arbitrarily. It was the slow fade. It was one compromise at a time. And that begins personally with each of us here today. For those of us here today or who are joining us online uh, that believe in Jesus, identifying as his disciples, we must understand the consequences or promises when we compromise our faith and abandon the standards and commands God has called us to live. It doesn't take a hard look at the word compromise to find the word promise right within. If there is one in the room today, though, that does not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, this message is for you as well, because when we go through life trying to fill our life with every other pleasure, possibility, and pursuit other than Jesus, we are not in a slow fade, but in a rapid descent. The ride may be thrilling for a while, but I assure you with all love and compassion that the trajectory leads to a crash, that there is only one rescue one possible hope from, only one lifesaver, and that is Jesus. For the fathers in the room today, I speak to you for just a moment. Much of this message has a tone for fathers. We are called to lead our families, are we not? We are given a responsibility of leadership that God has designed and ordained, and today we stand as a demographic and culture that has been sidelined, minimized, made light of, made fun of, from the God-prescribed plan for men and fathers. Thus, I encourage you, dads in the room here on Father's Day, listen closely. My own father did not listen closely. In fact, sadly, his life remains one of compromise through denial and deception still. Although I'm happy uh, and have many times with some of you one-on-one uh, -on -one explain and unpack the detailed explanation, um, this morning doesn't allow me to do that. Doesn't allow the capacity for the time to convey every detail and its fullness and complexity about the journey of my life over the last 37 years as it pertains to my father and the impact, his choices and his compromises have had in my life and my family growing up and even my beautiful family that, uh, that God has blessed me with today. However, what I can tell you to paint a broad 
picture, broad strokes, is that my father somewhere along the line believed and and lives a lie, many lies, really, of compromise. Times of turning away from the Lord, living in total denial and rebellion, behaving and believing as he has a form of godliness, which is really nothing godly at all, manipulation, misdirection, moral depravity. The resulting hurt ran deep. The dysfunction tore at my family growing up. The many wounds still have after effects, ripple effects, into my own life as a husband and father today that I must always be aware of, always watchful for. Today, considering Pastor, I can affirm there is tremendous victory and freedom for the one who forgives. For forgiveness is not necessarily nor only demonstrated by reconciliation of relationship, although that is certainly the desired goal, for that may not be received or reciprocated at the time. But it is about release and surrender of an offense or hurt to the Lord who can restore you when the offending person can't or won't. I stand before you and the Lord today as one who has forgiven his father. Yet I presently and regrettably do not have a relationship with him. My children are, are getting to the, to the age where they ask, who is your father, daddy? Where, where is he? Our explanation goes something like this, that sometimes when grown-ups make bad choices, there are grown-up-sized consequences. My daddy made some really bad choices when I was growing up, and, and his choices hurt a lot of people, especially grandma. And so that's why he's not around, and you haven't met him yet. Daddy can't trust his actions and wouldn't want you to get hurt. Compromise brings consequence. The reality is, though, through the counsel of two peer leaders at Liberty when I was but a sophomore, more than 15 years ago, as I sat and reflected on the time frame for that, I was kind of hard to believe, I came to the place of letting go of trying to hold my father accountable with my anger, hurt, and judgment and gave it to the Lord. For that bitterness would have been my undoing. It would have prevented the Lord from using me to the God-given design and potential he had planned for me. Moreover, I did actually have the unique opportunity to forgive my father to his face in the setting of a court-appointed counseling session that was required of my younger brother and sister during my parents' divorce. I attended this particular session with them and in front of that secular counselor who thought I was ridiculous and told me so. It's okay, I thought she was ridiculous too. But honestly, and with finality, a mocking chuckle, a condescending grin, See, you must understand, uh, my dad believes he has never done anything wrong and nothing was ever his fault, everybody else's. So forgiving him for nothing was misguided and naive on my part. Entirely reflective of much of what I heard from him. But that's okay. My heart of forgiveness wasn't dependent or defined by the response of the recipient. It was between me and the Lord. And on that day, in that moment of time, time stood still for me, and I can recall it uh, as clear as I'm standing before you here today, the change in my heart. I know it to be true, because if it weren't, the last 15 plus years of ministry would have been hindered by unforgiveness. And how am I any different than my dad? I'm not. I simply live by this one premise, one reminder when it comes to my dad's fallen nature. It also keeps me humble from lapsing into judgment or anger. I am just one wrong step away from being like my dad. Now, I I see a couple of you uh, shaking your heads. You you say, no, that's not true of you, and that's too hard on yourself. Well, While I appreciate that, I will never let anyone tell me otherwise. Because I cannot live on my own power, my own works or ability, 
or what is right in my own eyes. My reputation is nothing apart from Christ. The day that it drifts, well, there's the day of compromise. Pastors who get themselves on pedestals only have one way down. When pastors are on their knees in prayer and in humility, they are already bowing before the one, the only one who is worthy. For we are all sinners saved by grace and have fallen short of the glory of God. Without Jesus, there is no hope. When we choose to ignore God's commands and will for our life, we become hindered. We block God's blessing in our life. We prohibit and prevent God's plan for our life. When we slide down the slope or fade into the winds of compromise, it is we who grow distant from God. God remains true and sure. He is immovable, unchanging, and everlasting. His love never fails us even when we fail. We can see through Israel's failures how God can take his hand of blessing and guidance off of us when we compromise. We are going to be taking a look at the book of Judges here in the time remaining. While the book features several major characters, many of which uh, we are familiar with, we might think of Deborah or Gideon or Samson, um, the book is not so much about the position or person of a judge as the English title suggests. The Hebrew word pronounced shephat has a broader meaning than the word judge as we would use it or think about it. The word means leader or deliverer. The type of leadership that the judges provided was very unique. They were divinely raised up by God in times of crises to meet specific threats that Israel was facing. Basically, their goal was to set a compromised situation right. Whatever trouble Israel had gotten itself into, whatever uh, steps that they had taken away from the Lord, God raised up a leader to bring them back to a place of, of acceptance of God and, and repentance for, for their sin. After the time of Joshua's death and the death of the elders from his time, Israel began to do what was right in their own eyes. Judges chapter 21, verse 25, and thus did evil in the sight of the Lord, as we're going to see here in our passage in chapter 2. Israel was caught in a vicious cycle, a vicious cycle of compromise, apostasy, oppression, and eventually coming back to deliverance. The book of Judges is a story after story of tragedy because the Israelites never learned, they never repented, and never changed. Their constant compromise to Jehovah God was a recipe for catastrophe, and they would eventually encounter that catastrophe. The cycle of disobedience, discipline, despair, deliverance is seen today whenever God's people turn away from his word and go their own way. If disobedience isn't followed by divine discipline, then the person is not truly a child of God, for God chastens all his children. Warren Wearsby. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3 through 13, explains to us well the discipline of the Father. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly <clears throat> the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children, not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in his holiness. Verse 11 says, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet." so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. The book of Judges is inspired record of Israel's failures and God's faithfulness. But in the study of this book, in the passage uh, as context of only past history, we would miss the message completely. 
This book is about God's people today and the lessons that we can take away from it. When the psalmist reviewed the period of Judges in Psalm chapter 106, verses 40 through 47, he proclaimed this, Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his inheritance. Then he gave them into the land of the nations, and those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them, and they were subdued under their power. Many times he would deliver them. They, however, were rebellious in their counsel, and so sank down in their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry, and he remembered his covenant for their sake, and he relented according to the greatness of his loving kindness. He also made them objects of compassion in the presence of all their captors. Verse 47, save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations to give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. It is much the same with our lives today. Our society is in a mindset of moral decay, exactly like the Israelites had in Judges. The means, the modes, the manifestations may be different, but the sin is the same. It is very difficult at times, yet so important as Christians, we do not compromise our faith, our integrity, our relationship with Jesus Christ, lest we face the promises of our compromise, just as the Israelites did. Perhaps in many ways, we already are. If you are physically able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Turn to Judges chapter 2, verses 11 through 23. If you do not have your personal copy of God's word with you today, it will be on the screens for you to follow. Judges chapter 2, verse 11 through 23. <clears throat> then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they, they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroth. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them and he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them so that they were severely distressed. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. When the Lord raised up the judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he said, because this nation has transgressed my covenant which I commanded their fathers and has not listened to my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not. So the Lord allowed those nations to remain, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Dear Jesus, I pray that you would uh, bless uh, the reading of your word and touch our hearts and minds today with your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Let's take a verse-by-verse -verse look at the process which unfolds for the recipe of compromise as provided by the Israelites. It is so true of our tendencies, both as individuals and as a people today. When we look at the scripture in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 11, we first come to the rejection of relationship. The Israelites forgot the Lord's commandment in verse 11. They forgot the Lord's commandment. Israel did evil in the Lord's sight. Israel had a relationship with other gods, not Jehovah. It should not have been so easy for the Israelites to forget the commandments of the Lord. What does it mean to forget? A dictionary definition provides this answer. To inadvertently neglect to do, bring, or mention something. Doesn't seem so serious when you read the dictionary definition. Everyone in my house forgets to close the folding closet door in our hallway, which holds shoes and, closet and coats. Shoes being the most frequent culprit. 
they go in, get to the shoes, and race off to whatever is next. This drives me up a wall. I feel as if every time I turn the corner or start to go down that hallway, the, go to the, the bedrooms in the back of the house, I'm shutting the door. Or, more realistically, I'm yelling for the last person who used it to come back and shut it. It is a simple and forgetful act to, due to haste and preoccupation. It isn't malicious or intentional, although I'm sure I respond at times to the left open door as if it were a personal offense. But it's, it's the little act of forgetfulness and details, neglecting the little things that often gets us into trouble. When we forget the little things, it can lead to bigger trouble, bigger issues on down the road. I mean, forgetting to close the closet door leads to a whole downward fall of other high crimes. Not closing the closet door leads to shoes, not even making it to the closet, left outside the door, left in the living room, left on the front porch, jackets not being hung up, lost shoes, having to take time to find lost shoes, running late for whatever it is we were trying to get to because of looking for the lost shoes, not having the right shoes, tantrums for not having shoes that were wanted. Yeah, real life stuff, I know. I have some issues, yes. The fact that there is a, a fingerprint a smudge behind me on the drum shield wall and, and Adam's uh, talkback mic is slightly crooked and the second row, the second section here is not on the same angle as the row in front of it. Well, all of those things bother me in the subconscious levels of my mind. You can imagine living with me. Pray for Kristen, please. That is exactly how things began for the Israelites, though. It's how things are the way they are for us as a people today. It's the small compromises. It's the gradual build towards the bigger issues and the bigger trouble that can come our way. Now, this happens because we are sinful and broken in our nature. God knows this and has compassion for us time and time again because he loves us. We forget what is right. We can be easily distracted and detoured off the right path by our own forgetfulness. How did Israel forget the Lord's commandment? They started focusing on something else. They started worshiping something else, Baal. What is a Baal? or Baal, or Baal, or whatever English pronunciation you want to use for that. Briefly, Baal was one of the chief false deities worshipped in the land of Canaan. The idol is pictured as standing astride a bull and was thought to provide spring rains and fertile crops, a, a god of land fertility, basically. Baal was also a secular term, meaning simply lord, master, or owner, originally. Within the culture, this term was adapted and applied to a god uh, as people's focus shifted to idol worship. There were numerous manifestations of this god, and we often see the Old Testament reference this term and idea in the plural form. Instead of standing apart from secular culture and around them and holding true to God's commandments and the leadership and example that was passed down by Moses and by Joshua, the Israelites switched their spiritual allegiance this began with a slow fade that would become a habitual downward cycle we see over and over throughout the Old Testament. David Platt unpacks in his book Counterculture that in our constant quest to satisfy ourselves, we actually become slaves to sin. We attempt to remove our guilt by redefining right and wrong to cultural fads. In his book Flashpoints, Stephen Arterburn describes our wandering away from what God has outlined for us as true and right as temptation, which is the desire to fulfill a natural yearning in an inappropriate way. The Israelites forgot. The Israelites forsook what the Lord had said. This is the natural result of failing to train one's children in the ways of the Lord. If we don't actively teach righteousness to the next generation, they will naturally fall into evil, especially in the pagan ways of the world around them. This generation of Israelites began to worship Baal who had not been driven out of the land. We must retain a distinct separation from our culture while mounting opposition to it. 
or else we will blend with it. Instead of being molded to this world, the Bible calls us to have our minds renewed and so be transformed in nature, able to make out the will of God and what it is, what is good and acceptable to him and perfect, Romans 12, 2. The Israelites went a step further, though, into the fade. It wasn't just Baal. It was Baal's counterpart, too, as we see in Scripture. They began incorporating the worship of Ashtaroth. The Ashtarests were various false goddesses, including Ashtaroth, the consort of Baal, and Asherah, wife of Baal's father, because that mattered, who were believed to bring fertility and military strength. They were essentially goddesses of love and war. The pagan worship rites of these counterfeit gods and goddesses included temple prostitution and child sacrifice. So things were bad then too. We get riled up at the injustices of our day, and rightly so. But new and modern sins are nothing new to God. He has sadly seen his creation do it all before. We just live in the 21st century version of depravity. We see the Israelites disrespected their father's relationship with God. They disregarded what God had done for them. They desired false gods. They denied Jehovah God as a priority, and they arrived at the place of being in danger of God's anger. If the church is going to resist forsaking what the Lord has commanded, we must not have fear. Fear is a powerful force leading more and more churches today to accommodation and adaptation instead of confrontation with the surrounding culture. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not a call to cultural compromise in the face of fear. It is a call to counter-cultural crucifixion, death to self in the face of earthly opposition for the sake of eternal reward. David Platt. We are to engage our culture. If the church is going to do this, though. We must cease thinking that God calls only missionaries and pastors. God calls all believers, all of us, to do this. To produce an effective counterculture, we must do so in every walk of life within the church. Every vocation that is not vocational ministry has a mandate to be the light of the world. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 12, Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. He tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 16, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that we may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. But as we see what happened next in Judges, the Israelites forfeited what the Lord had promised. God's anger towards them was inevitable. God's abandoned them to their enemies. God allowed them to fall. God allowed them to be humiliated. Notice a few key words in those descriptions. Scripture did not say that in wrath God struck the people with lightning. He didn't smite them with an affliction or exact direct punishment of some other type or consequence. God allowed their choices to dictate what happened to them. They chose. God allowed. The Israelites faced God's hand, not his face. God's silence was demonstrated. God's sincerity was established. And God's separation was experienced as a result of the compromise. One of the promises of compromise is the loss of relationship with our God, the rejection of relationship. Of all the ways Israel and likewise we compromise, it can be summed up in one main area. All of our compromise are a result of a compromise in our faith. The effect of not knowing the Lord is expressed not intellectually by our actions. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Faith is not merely something that one believes or gives thought to, but it is something one does with and in their life. Because of their lack of faith, the Israelites turned away from the Lord completely. The result of this turning away from the Lord was that he, in anger, turned away from them. The Israelites rejected their covenantal, personal relationship with Jehovah. And as a consequence of their sin, God rejected them. Christ's call to us 
is not to comfort, coddle, or condone our culture. But the call compels us to counter our culture by being set apart. Next, we see the refusal of restoration in verses 16 through 19. The Israelites' undeserving deliverance is demonstrated here. God provided restoration. God brought them victory. There was a time of peace, of of victory, of, of connection back with God. God's grace and love is so sufficient. He never ceases to amaze us with his love and compassion for his people. Yet how often do we ignore his grace and act as though it is not good enough? The Israelites had unrelenting pride in verse 17. This time, it was not the first time God had demonstrated his love and compassion on his people. Far from it. If we turn the pages back in the Old Testament, we would very quickly discover Encounter after encounter, example after example, victory and rescue, love and compassion, provision and protection, where God shows his love, his long-suffering, his patience with his chosen people. But after a while, each time, after Moses, after Joshua, forgetting Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Israelites enter the slow fade. They ignored the lesson of their liberation Decorated Colonel Jeff O'Leary says, most of what we leave behind is caught, not taught. Whether in the home or office, we are being watched. The measure of our legacy will equal our level of commitment to our principles. The Israelites were personal recipients of the Ten Commandments. They knew the law. They literally, physically lugged it around with them everywhere they went. When it wasn't modeled, when it wasn't lived out, When it wasn't passed down, the people left their legacy in a box instead of unpacking it into the daily living of their life, their lives. They insulted the legacy of their fathers. Several years ago now, the Lord gave me a fresh idea on this uh, concept, this idea of legacy. I came to understand that legacy is not so much the past as it is the future, the present develops. What I mean by that is this. The past can easily discourage. The future can easily distract. The present is the only thing defined for us. It is the present. What we do with each and every moment we have that develops our past and determines our future. What legacy are you leaving behind, fathers? What impact are you making today on your children? Not yesterday, not tomorrow, right now. For now is all we have to work with. It's a constant reminder for me. Colonel Jeff O'Leary also said this, people seldom become famous for what they say until after they are famous for what they have done. We see the unbelievable compassion of God demonstrated in verse 18. God gives grace through a deliverer. God gives peace from distress. That was the whole role of the judge. God raised up leaders to rescue and save and direct the people back to the Lord and to living right. God still does that today. With each generation in our day, God faithfully raises up voices to speak to the people. I think of several that have now passed away. Giants like Billy Graham, Dr. Jerry Falwell, Adrian Rogers, and D. James Kennedy. My children won't know those names personally. They will be historical figures to them. I often wonder who is going to be quoted in sermons uh, and used as an example 20 years from now. It is getting harder and harder and more discouraging to discern that with the vast amount of great pastors among us who seem to fall by the week, not just once in a blue moon. The Israelites' underlying sin returns in verse 19. The positive influence of a leader didn't last. The insurrection worsens. Their practices of evil stubbornly increased. Notice the description here in verse 19. Turn back and act more corruptly. The Israelites didn't just do evil. They did it more evil than had been done before. The further the departure, the greater the distance, the deeper the sin becomes. Truett Cathy, founder of Chick-fil-A, sorry to bring Chick-fil-A up on a Sunday, y'all are going to hate me now, in his book called It's Better to Build Boys Than Mend Men, wrote, 
I found that you reap much more than you sow, just as a kernel of corn planted yields much more than a single kernel. Sow a seed of trouble, and you'll harvest a bushel of sorrow. And then he said, eat more chicken. <laughs> I had the opportunity to meet Trick Cathy once and shake his hand briefly, and that was all he said to me. Eat more chicken. And he went on. Again, sorry to bring Chick-fil-A up on a Sunday, guys. You're just going to have to roll with it. Former Florida and Texas senior pastor, now president of Guidestone Financial Resources, O.S. Hawkins writes, being comes before doing because what we eventually end up doing is most always determined by who we really are. Being does not eliminate doing, it accelerates it. Speaking to pastors specifically, he goes on to say, people would rather see a sermon in your life of the pastor than hear one any day. Integrity is your most valuable asset. Your personal life and the integrity you show go farther than anything else. He further extols us all by exclaiming that if you are living a life that lacks integrity, you will be found out. God will either expose it before the world or take away his hand of anointing and blessing from you. Daniel of the Old Testament is a shining example of integrity. If we were to take a quick look at the book of Daniel, chapter 6, we would find a quick outline for understanding integrity. Integrity is rooted in your private life. Integrity is reflected in your personal life. Integrity is reinforced in your professional life. Integrity is revealed in your public life. And we see that unfold in the life of Daniel. You discover the true nature uh, of the people by observing them when they are not bound by external constraints. During the judges' reigns in Israel, uh, followed, they followed the commands of God and the leader's direction. However, once the judge, the restraining one, died and his influence with him was taken out of the way, the people went right back to their old ways. God's kindness in verses 16 and 18 does not even move the Israelites to faithfulness and repentance. They go back to their compromising sin. The Israelites had become comfortable in their sinful ways, and it was easier to live like that without a leader guiding and rescuing them. The Israelites eventually became so accustomed to the sinful ways of the pagans around them that they didn't even seem sinful anymore. We see in verses 20 through 23 the repercussion of non-repentance. We find God's anger was a compromised consequence in verse 20. Israel ignored God's covenant and commands. Israel ignored the call of God's voice. We should make no mistake about the fact that our nation is becoming more and more morally bankrupt because we live by a philosophy that seldom asks why questions and most often simply asks what questions. You can take almost any issue that plagues our culture today. The times and types are different, but our sin is not different to God. Long after the time of Judges, Jeremiah lived in a day much like ours, and his country had been blessed and had prospered, but once again, he had forgotten, they had forgotten their roots and their God. And the parallels in Jeremiah chapter 8 between our time today uh, are striking. With each scroll of the Facebook feed or the click of a news article, we have a generation today who does not know Christ because we fail to make him known. God's abandonment was a compromise. Israel failed in its expectations from God, and God ceased providing and protecting against their enemies. God was very angry with Israel and thus abandons them to their enemies and their evil ways and their sins. Apart from death in Christ, sinners get nothing but judgment. Apart from the cross of Christ, there is only condemnation. One of the reasons we are not as Christ-centered and cross-saturated as we should be is that we have not realized that everything, everything good, everything bad, that God turns for good for, of his redeemed children was purchased by the death of Christ for us. We simply take it for granted. The Israelites didn't read John Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life, for they certainly did waste all that God had given them and was preparing to give them. How often we do the same. In verse 22, we see God assessed through trial as a compromised consequence. God uses adversaries and difficulty to test loyalty to him. Israel's walk would determine their belief in God. God allowed difficulties as a trial to not necessarily see more proof of their disobedience, because he sure had seen enough of that, but to hopefully bring them to repentance. God is in the business of restoration and reconciliation. We see this demonstrated over and over again. But God also assesses. He assesses our readiness. He assesses our willingness. 
He assesses our hearts. Jesus is the means by which everything will be restored. A a dictionary definition would define restoration as the act of returning something to its original state, but the Bible has a slightly different take on the word because sometimes when it speaks of restoration, it is not returning something to its original state, but rather a state that it had never been before. God's ambiguity to Israel is a compromised consequence. Israel was in bondage. God's timing was not accommodating nor responsive because he was waiting, waiting for obedience, waiting for his people to turn back to him. The promises of compromise are seen in these last four verses of anger, abandonment, assessment, and ambiguity are the manifestations of the consequences we face when we compromise before God. God became distant and vague to the Israelites because they had become vague and distant to him. There's a consequence promise in compromise. The lesson we learn from this passage in Judges is just how dangerous our compromise is. When we continue to live in rebellion, rejecting our relationship with him and refusing to be restored, we can face God's hand against us and not over us. There's a reality check for us today. We need to recognize the hope in Christ versus the hindrance of compromise. Stephen Arterburn exhorts us that we are to stop waiting for God to do what God is waiting for you to do. God doesn't want your comfort to increase. He wants your character to grow. God says to flee temptation in 2 Timothy 2 verse 22. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace for those who Call on the Lord from a pure heart. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 10 also reminds us to turn our backs on things that entice us. So rather than asking God to just, you know, fix things, we need to fix and ask for God's help in doing so. God's strength and relying on his power. We need to run by moving toward the help that you need in Christ. Character is not essential to being Christian. It's not. Character is what makes you a disciple worth following. Character is the will to do what is right, even when it is hard. Character is about will because it requires a willingness to make tough decisions. Having the will to do what is right requires you to determine what is right before the struggle to do what's right ensues. C.S. Lewis conveyed this truth. You know I'm going to have a C.S. Lewis quote in there. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft, underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Screw tape letters. We are always one decision, one word, one action away from damaging what has taken perhaps years to develop. We need to shift from the hindrance of compromise to the hope of Christ. The little girl singing in the song, Slow Fade, we began this message with today, said, be careful little eyes what you see. Our eyes are amazing things. It is said they are a window to the soul. If that is true, then it is paramount that we turn our eyes on Jesus. I wear contacts. So I don't normally wear glasses, except before bed and in the morning. My contacts allow me to see 2020. The eye doctor says even better than that. I'm not, I don't sure I really understand that. Maybe that's my problem for seeing all the details that are out of place. But uh, it, it allows me to see. Without them, I'd be very, very nearsighted. I put my glasses on with my contacts on, and I can still see. But things are blurry because I put something else on over What I'm already able to see is truth and is clear. The truth is still out there. I can see all of you, but you're blurry. Double vision. It clouds and distorts and confuses. It is not until we put on the lens of God's word that we can see clearly what is right and what is righteous. And those of us that believe in Jesus today have that within us. When we put other things over or in the way in our life, It's when we start to have that slow fade. When we open God's word, God opens our eyes to the compromise around us. And we can recognize our need to turn quickly from doing what is right in our own eyes and turning towards the ways we find God's word tell us to live. 
My question for you today is, are you willing to live without compromise? What does that mean for you? What area of your life is God bringing to mind right now, stirring in your heart? Fathers in the room, just a reminder to draw you back to the reality that today is Father's Day. There's a profound message on the importance of fatherhood and integrity and legacy in this passage of Judges that we just walked through. For six times in this passage of Scripture does the word reference the word fathers in context of the importance of intentionally passing down what is true and needs to be followed. I think there's a double-edged takeaway there. This morning, maybe you're here today and you're struggling with a compromise. What do you need to surrender? Whatever it is, what God has is better for you. Don't take my word for it. Take his. God is worthy of your best. Will you give it to him today? But maybe you're here today and you say, Pastor, I can see there's a struggle and strife in the world for sure. Maybe even in my own life. But you talk about this faith and surrender and trusting the Lord instead of myself. And, and you're just not there right now. You're not tracking with me. This is foreign to you. You don't know what it means. If you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ, the journey begins in one simple step. No slow fades, no rapid descents, but a step. Not of good works, not of good intentions. It begins the very moment you recognize and admit that Jesus died on the cross for your sins because he loves you and that he rose again from the dead, defeating sin and conquering your compromise for you already. If you just put your faith and trust in him to be your Lord and Savior. Today can be your day of becoming unhindered from compromise. Regardless of this is your first step or the first step in a long time in the right direction, I believe God is calling us to quit compromising. Stand firm, turn your eyes upon Jesus and off the things of this world, which only distract, deceive, delude, and destroy, and live for him. Commit today and say that you are ready to stop the compromise. Maybe you're a dad in the room who needs to make this the first Father's Day without compromise. Say, I'm ready to turn my eyes upon Jesus to where the things of this earth go strangely dim. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.